So welcome once again to those of you gathering with us tonight for this third lecture on the life and thought of Yvonne Illich. If you're joining us for the first time, my name is Michael Sacassis, and I'm the Associate Director of the Christian Studies Center of Gainesville. It is our aim at the Study Center to serve the university community here at the University of Florida by creating space for vibrant, honest, and meaningful conversations about contemporary culture and the shared questions at the heart of the human experience. And toward that end, we seek to represent the best of the Christian intellectual tradition. Uh, and in keeping with that, I have been offering these three talks on uh, the work of Ivan Illich. I have to say that I, I find Illich's work in, uh, incredibly useful and helpful and relevant, as is probably evident if you've uh, joined our uh, previous two lectures. And uh, I, I, I admit that I compromise myself more than I should like to admit on Twitter, but I do that uh, largely to share the work of Yvonne Illich and to spend uh, the better part of my time on there, highlighting how Illich's analysis and framework and categories uh, very helpfully uh, shed a very uh, clear light on many of the social ills and dilemmas that we struggle with um, today on a nearly daily basis. In the first lecture, we looked at Illich's views uh, on the question of limits and scale. And in the second, we explored the understanding of friendship that I think was at the heart of uh, a project for potential political renewal. Tonight, uh, my aim is to consider what may be an even more urgent topic, and I've uh, titled that The Reclamation of the Senses, as Lecture settled The Reclaiming of the Senses. As I prepared for tonight, I revisited uh, a short talk that Illich gave in the early 90s, 1993, I believe, at an event honoring Jacques Ellul. Illich began the talk in this way. With Alul in the audience, he, he says, Professor Alul, I would much prefer to say, Master Jacques, I have been moved by your comparison of a master with an ox, which in pulling the plow opens a furrow. I have striven to follow you in a filial spirit, making all the false steps which that implies. I hope you accept my harvest and can recognize some flowers among what might seem a mixture of noxious weeds. This is classic Illich. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, deeply personal framing. So needless to say, I have been proceeding very much in the spirit, following in the furrows plowed by Master Illich. Uh, only it is not to Illich uh, that I have uh, the pleasure, but rather to you uh, that I offer my harvest such as it is, uh, with the hope that you too might receive some flowers amidst the possibly noxious weeds. Uh, that said, one of the joys of reading Ivan Illich, especially if you take it upon yourself to read chronologically across the body of his work, is that you get to see a model, all too rare these days, of an honest, serious, morally serious, and spirited pursuit of truth and wisdom of a scholar willing to acknowledge his own missteps, uh, to revisit his analysis, uh, one that refuses, one who refuses to rest on his own earlier conclusions, however uh, much those may have been attached to his name and, and whatever claim to fame he may have had. So at the heart of tonight's talk is precisely one of these terms in Illich's thinking, as he continued to reevaluate his earlier work and push for a deeper and more substantive understanding of the modern world and its disorders. Indeed, the development that I will trace here uh, tonight may be the most significant turn of this sort in Illich's tireless pursuit of truth. Now, others may be better able to say whether that's a fair assessment or not. At the very least, it seems to mean that this turn, which I'll finally describe momentarily, sets the research agenda for the latter part of Illich's life. So this turn, this change of direction, uh, I would describe it as a turn toward the history of the body and the senses. It is evident already, for example, in Illich's revisiting of Medical Nemesis, uh, a book that uh, later became known as Limits to Medicine. Uh, it was published in 1975 and in 1985, 10 years after its publication, uh, Illich was invited to revisit his argument, and, and he did so. And in this talk, 
Illich explains that he had been, quote, deficient in his analysis. Um, he felt that he had missed the degree to which our understanding of the body itself had shifted. In other words, uh, he had quite, uh, he had arrived at the realization that the body has a history, that it is not simply a natural given that is experienced by all human beings at all times and in all places in exactly the same way. And so with this, he begins to bring a historical perspective to bear on the body, how is how it is experienced, and specifically the senses. So I would put it this way, uh, where the question had earlier been for Illich, what are we doing to the body with our tools? The question now becomes, what are we doing to the body, or excuse me, how do our tools shape what we think a body is? This was in itself an element of a a more expansive concern with systems uh, that is part of Illich's turn, uh, the turn in Illich's thinking at this point. So, for example, Illich feared that health and our understanding of the body were being subsumed into what he called an ontology of systems, that we were in danger of understanding the body as a system, and healthcare was a matter of managing or optimizing the system rather than of the well-being of a person. We were being reduced, he puts it in one place, to our chart. What was being lost in this transition was the body itself as a distinct material reality and the ground of human experience. And the loss was happening, I would say, in his view, at the level of felt experience. The felt body was being lost. Our own perception of who we were as embodied creatures was shifting. So here's what he told David Cayley around this time in the late 80s that his focus on systems was emerging. He says to Cayley, I believe that there has been a change in the mental space in which many people live. Some kind of catastrophic breakdown of one way of seeing things has led to the emergence of a different way of seeing things. The subject of my writing, Illich goes on to say, has been the perception of sense in the way we live. And in this respect, we are, in my opinion, at this moment, passing over a watershed. He adds, I had not expected in my lifetime to observe this passage. And so Illich comes to, to think in the, in the mid eighties that he had, he is living through that we who were alive at the time had been living through a, a momentous shift in how we understood the world and our, and our place in it. In the first talk that I gave, I alluded to this wider turn in Illich's thinking by referencing his realization that we had moved from an age of instruments, which is what he came to call the previous age, to an age of systems. And so the story here involves uh, rather arcane elements of uh, the medieval worldview. It's grounded in Illich's realization with the help of uh, the philosopher of technology, Carl Mitchum, that in the medieval picture of the cosmos, where the earth was at the center of a series of concentric spheres, each of them containing one of the medieval planets until finally in the uttermost sphere, the Imperium, we enter the realm of God, that in this view of, of the universe, of the cosmos, a new way of understanding divine agency was evolving, and one in which uh, divine agency was mediated, as it were, through the angelic presences in these spheres that then mediated their influence down to um, the earth itself and to, and to human culture, human lives. If you've read through Dante's Paradiso, uh, this is a recurring theme that Dante takes up. And in the midst of this sort of thinking about uh, the way in which divine agency is mediated through the angelic influences in these spheres, a new, a new cause was added to the basic um, fourfold structure of causality in traditional Aristotelian philosophy. And it was a subset of the efficient cause. It was the, the instrumental cause. And it was a way of describing the manner in which the angels used the spheres to mediate their influence onto the earth. Now, maybe this seems uh, somewhat akin to the way in which we sometimes uh, hear scholastic philosophy mocked uh, in terms of the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? 
But Illich sees here something, uh, a very important development in the intellectual culture of the West, because what arises out of this is a new way of thinking about tools. So Illich proposes that this is the first time that we begin to think of technology or tools in the way that we now tend to be accustomed to thinking of them. He notes, for example, that prior to this, um, there's no clear way, it seems, of distinguishing between the the hand that holds the hammer and the hammer itself, that there is uh, a way in which the body runs into the tool, so the tool hardly appears as its own uh, artifact or object of interest. But from this point forward, and Illich here notes the work of uh, his medieval friend, as he liked to call him, Hugh of St. Victor, uh, in theorizing uh, technology for the first time in a way that feels familiar to us. And so this idea that the tool is something that stands apart from us, uh, through which we mediate our agency, uh, that has a, a causal effect that we can direct into the world, this mode of thinking about technology or of tools, this instrumental view of technology, Illich comes to see as being characteristic of the modern world. And it also was the way in which he understood himself proceeding in the arguments that he makes in Tools for Conviviality or in Deschooling Society, where he makes expansive use of this concept of tools uh, as not only a hammer in hand, but also uh, t- the technological um, the, the technological character of institutions are included in this, in this category for him. But he still is operating under this uh, understanding of the tool as an instrument, something apart from, something we stand apart from, uh, something that can be managed if only we take the right view of it and uh, animate it with the proper motives. So Illich comes to think that this was a deficiency uh, in his understanding of what the problem was that he was trying to address in the late 60s and early 70s. And and part of this involves his realization that we have transitioned into what he calls an age of systems. The system, and and this is perhaps a key difference, uh, as I understand it, the system, unlike the tool, incorporates the user. So if I may step away from, from the hammer in hand or the other tool that I may pick up to accomplish a very specific purpose. If I think of it as something that I can step away from and consider analytically and, and with a, a fair degree of agency sort of restructure and repurpose and put to certain uses rather than others, then that that's one way of thinking about how to approach the problems caused by technology. But if on the other hand, there's no clear dividing line between myself and the tool. If the institution is a system that incorporates me, it becomes much harder to sort of imagine myself standing back from it in order to exercise my agency over it. So the system incorporates the user, and this to, to Illich was a, uh, a deeply different way of approaching the problem of technology in modern culture. An interesting part of the story is the degree to which Illich had himself uh, flirted, although perhaps that's not the best word, but had attempted to employ cybernetic thinking, which had come into vogue in the mid-20th century, uh, and how he then later came to repudiate this way of thinking. Uh, Francisco Valera and Humberto Martinara, Maturana, who were important figures in the early cybernetic movement, uh, which we might sort of just gloss as uh, systems thinking, were frequent visitors to CEDOC in Mexico when Illich was there. So, for example, here is how Illich reflects back on this time. He says, I wanted to make it plausible to a generation committed to the pursuit of health that throughout history, the human condition had been suffered. But, and this is Illich again reflecting back on his flirtation with cybernetics from the perspective of 15 years or so, he says, I was still under Gregory Bateson's influence. Gregory Bateson is one of the fathers of cybernetics. And he says uh, that under his influence, uh, believing that concepts like feedback, program, autopoiesis, or information, when shrewdly used, could clarify issues. And so it was Illich's strategy at this point to employ cybernetic categories in order to grant a degree of agency and autonomy back to the individual or the person in the midst of the, the bureaucratic institution. 
goes on, he says, however, I thought I could equate suffering, that is in the sense of, of suffering our existence, our, the human condition, being patient with it, not trying to master it. Um, he, he says he thought he could equate that with coping, another cybernetic category uh, uh, to describe the way in which a, a system uses its feedback loops to enter into um, uh, a, a state of relative stability. But Illich says, I was wrong. As soon as you understand suffering as coping, you already have made the decisive step from bearing with your rebellious, torn, and disoriented flesh. You have moved toward control of yourself conceived as a system. And so Illich came to see that the language of cybernetics was itself not neutral. It wasn't simply a kind of tool that you could deploy to accomplish a purpose. In using this terminology, in uh, allowing this terminology to enter into our understanding, we were at the same time shifting our understanding of the very body we were seeking uh, to gain a measure of autonomy over or to reconceive in a more humane way. The concern of cybernetics, after all, were systems of control and regulation. And it conceived, uh, and they conceived that these systems, cybernetics did, like the body, the body itself is conceived as a center of information processing. Clearly, the body itself was lost. The person was lost in this framing. And insofar as the systems interacted with one another, there was not an outside or an inside. You were integrated into the system itself. Two consequences, if I may gloss on this understanding, two consequences follow. Wherever the system extends, it distributes agency. So it, it raises the question of who controls what. I want us to think about this perhaps in terms of, of the numerous tools or devices or programs or apps that we may now deploy ourselves uh, in our homes, um, on our own bodies, in order to measure, or to track, or to surveil different aspects of our experience, how much money we're spending, our heart rate, our sleep patterns, uh, our, the, what is happening on our front porches, etc. There are countless ways in which we have been given systems, consumer systems, that in essence promise a measure of control over these various aspects of, of human experience. But then the question becomes, what happens when we just become integrated into these systems and we are unable to exercise any autonomy over the data that these systems generate. And so the question is often a question of privacy, who has access to the data that is gathered by these systems. Uh, it, but it is also a question of what others will do with that data. And so increasingly we hear stories about insurance companies that uh, want are, are happy to extend Fitbits to customers because it will grant them access into the uh, health metrics of the individual, and that will then allow them to better calibrate uh, their insurance policies and rates, and to also exclude uh, some from coverage. And so once you introduce these systems uh, into your own experience, you are immersed in them in a way that distributes agency over the, final, the, the, the product or the uh, phenomena that is being observed in such a way that you indeed yield autonomy because the system doesn't simply end in a particular place, it incorporates you into it. And in this context, I would also add that a new self begins to emerge. And I want to ex expand on this uh, by briefly borrowing a discussion in the work of the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who himself was very fond of, uh, came to be very fond of, of Illich's, uh, of Illich's theory, theory of modernity. In Taylor's work, the idea of disenchantment looms very large, and he understands the emergence of the modern self uh, in part as the emergence of a buffered self, a self that feels itself protected from the kind of spiritual forces or agencies that characterize the, the, the pre-modern world. The modern self is uh, comfortable and powerful and exerts control, technoscientific mastery over this world. It no longer sees uh, the world as uh, populated by fairies or other um, magical creatures or spiritual forces. 
that he has little control over. Instead, what now begins to happen, I would argue, is that this self, this buffered self, becomes newly porous, not because the world is re-enchanted in this pre-modern sense, but because the world is is digitally re-enchanted. We enter into a new field of forces and agents that we have little understanding of and little control over that are constantly causing us both weal and woe, that are entering into our life and often exerting a measure of control over our life in ways that we can neither predict nor ultimately appeal. And so I think, for example, of the way in which algorithms now are being generated to go through a slew of applications and, and to cull out the, the candidates that are unlikely uh, to be good fits for a company. And you submit your application, maybe perhaps on the idea that someone is going to look at this and make a judgment call, but you've actually been sorted by an algorithm that is ultimately inscrutable uh, in its operations. And you have little appeal uh, as to the decisions, the arbit- seemingly arbitrary decisions of the algorithm. And so we, we ex- inhabit an increasingly in digitally enchanted realm that generates a new kind of self. And I, I integrate this into Illich's understanding of systems. Right? So the, the algorithmic uh, culture that builds up around us is in one way an extension of these systems of control that Illich began to, to understand the import of in the 1980s. So Illich's attention, as we have said, shifts to another register. He is now less interested in the structure of tools and more interested in the symbolic fallout of tools. That's his line. Here's how he puts this concern to David Cayley again in 1988. He says, I would like to get people to think about what tools do to our perception rather than what we can do with them. To look at how tools shape our mind, how their use shapes our perception of reality, rather than how we shape reality by applying or using them. Let me repeat that line once again. He is interested now in how our tools shape our perception of reality rather than how we shape reality by applying or using them. In other words, I'm interested, he goes on to say, in the symbolic fallout of applying or using our tools and how this fallout is reflected in what he calls very uh, provocatively the sacramental tool structure of the world. Now, with regards to how tools shape our perception, how they shape our mind, this is, of course, in a sense, pure 80-proof Marshall McLuhan and Walter Ahn and Eric Havelock and all of the scholars that came to be associated with the media ecology movement, uh, a movement uh, to which uh, Illich himself had begun to to contribute, uh, specifically with, with his work on the alphabetization of the Western mind that he co-wrote with Barry Sanders. And on a personal note, this is the the point in Illich's career uh, in which I caught him, as it were. Now, I began reading Illich after he had passed away, but what I first read was In the Vineyard of the Text, which is a book that comes out of it. It is Illich's uh, last book, and it is a book that comes out of this period of reflection and uh, is heavily dependent on, for example, the work of Walter Ong in seeking to understand how a different form of textuality that emerges in the 12th century begins to shape Western uh, consciousness. The, the modern self begins to emerge in these changes. And I won't get, take us down that path, uh, but I will say that this idea that technology is important, not just because of what we do with it, but because of what it does to us. Uh, we we build the, the tools and then the tools build us. We make the tools and the tools make us. This is a, a a classic McLuhan observation that I think is deeply important. And so Illich, I think, was right to make this turn, to try to understand at a more fundamental level where the action was, as it were, in terms of the problems that were proliferating in Western society. If, for example, the problem is at the level of perception, the level of understanding, if the tool is shaping us even when we are trying to use it ethically, 
then, the, then we have to direct our attention to that level of analysis in order to gain a better understanding of what it is that is happening to us. So let's come back to that talk that Illich gave to honor Jacques Ellul. It also comes out of the same period. It's in 1993. Here's what Illich says at that moment. He says, I have then attempted to explore the seductive power that the intensive dedication of modern enterprises to la technique. This is Ellul's term uh, for the devotion to efficiency that characterizes modern societies. And what Illich is saying, he's trying to understand how this dedication to technique in this Ellulian sense exercises over my mode of perception. In fact, not a year passes, Illich says, during the quarter century since Wilkinson gave me Ellul's book, that I do not detect a hitherto unperceived propensity to deny the reality of living in service to the technomolech. This is a, a, a dramatic formulation. And he goes on, Illich, to say, existence in a society that has become a system finds the senses useless precisely because because of the very instruments designed for their extension. One is prevented from touching and embracing reality. Further, one is programmed for interactive communication. One's whole being is sucked into the system. It is this radical subversion of sensation that humiliates and then replaces perception. Now, again, uh, in large measure, I think that Illich is here uh, channeling Marshall McLuhan, who talked about media as extensions of the self, and not just communication media, but all tools that we use that extend the self. But McLuhan also understood that the extension of the self can also be theorized as an amputation. When we extend our vision with the telescope, there is a sense in which the telescope is the thing we see through and not the eye itself. And this is why Illich is here saying that through these very instruments designed for the extension of the senses, the senses become useless. And why he adds that one is prevented from touching, embracing reality. And this is a concern that's very, at, at, very much at the heart of, of Illich's interest in this whole, in this whole project. And then he goes on, he uses the language of, of humiliation. It is this radical subversion sensation that humiliates echoing the title of Elul's The Humiliation of the Word, and then replaces perception. This is the note on which I'd like to explore, this is a note, uh, excuse me, on this note, I'd like to explore um, this concern with the senses and with their loss. My own sense is that Illich has here touched on a problem so pervasive that few of us are even able to notice it any longer a problem that we require painstaking historical work to understand of the very sort that Illich undertook, a problem that has nonetheless been identified in other guises as by Hannah Arendt when she wrote about our world alienation, our worldlessness, the loss of the world. And I proceed here, of course, with a critical theological assumption and one that I think that Illich shared and that is, and that is this, that there is a fundamental fittingness between the human body and its senses and the world that is at heart an expression of the goodness of the created order. In other words, that we have in some respects been made to fit the world that has, that is our home. It is this, this is reflected, I think, in the way that Illich came to conceive of the good as a function of proportionality. There is a kind of proportionality between the world and the human senses, and that this proportionality is good. It is the good uh, of, it can be subsumed under the the good evaluation that is passed by the creator in in the creation story in Genesis 1. And so our world alienation, the condition that Illich has here described, is only, uh, in some sense, a more sophisticated rendering of the project described to us in the story of the Tower of Babel, which I read as a story about a refusal to live according to the order of grace, the order of the gift, and to live instead according to the order of technological mastery 
and human self-sufficiency. So this project of reclaiming our senses could be framed as the most critical project we could possibly undertake. And in this, in this project, Illich first sets out to understand how perception has shifted culturally over time. And here he is describing this project in the same talk uh, to honor Jacques Ellul. He says, we submit ourselves to fantastic degradations of image and sound, image and sound consumption in order to anesthetize the pain resulting from having lost reality. To grasp this humiliation of sight, smell, touch, and not just hearing, it was necessary for me to study the history of bodily acts of perception. Not only biblical certitudes, but also medieval and classical truths concerning sensible perception, excuse me, have been subverted to the point where an exegesis of ancient texts must first overcome insurmountable conceptual and physiological obstacles. And so he goes on to say, uh, allow me to give you an example, albeit extreme. But before I proceed to that example, I want to reiterate uh, the first part of, of this uh, paragraph from Illich. And, and the, the language is, um, is, it, it sounds extreme, right? It, it has a, a, a profound urgency to it. When he says, for example, that we submit ourselves to fantastic degradations of image and sound consumption. And again, I'll, I'll remind you that Illich is writing this in uh, the world before the commercial internet had come to achieve the dominant place that it has now. In a world before we carried around uh, smartphones, which became gateways into ever more elaborate um, productions of sound and image that we consume in an almost compulsive fashion. But even at this early point, even before those developments, Illich begins to, to, comes to believe that this is a way of anesthetizing ourselves from the pain of having lost reality. And again, going back to this theological assumption that there's a, there's something good in the fittingness of the human senses to the world that, that has been created as our home. It would, it would follow from this that severing that fittingness, decoupling the body from the world, um, severing that proportionality would have profound psychic and social consequences, uh, that it would generate uh, a profound malaise in, in the human condition, and it would generate all sorts of, of disorders of both the mind and the heart. And I would say that in some measure, um, we, we see this happening and unfolding in our own society. So Illich says then, I, I undertake, you know, I undertook this history of bodily acts. He wants to try to understand whether or not there has been this profound shift, what, what is the nature of the shift and how we see and how we hear and how we smell and how we approach the world. And so in the example that he goes on to give is the example that uh, comes from the Gospels. And it was when, when Jesus commanded that if our eye offend, we should tear it out. Now, here's what he says about that. To tear out one's eye when it gives scandal, is an evangelical or gospel mandate. And this is an action that has always inspired horror. It was comprehensible, however, in a scopic regime or a regime of vision where the eyes emitted a visual cone which, like a luminous organ, seized and embraced reality. But such animated eyes except metaphorically. We no longer see enveloping reality by means of a cone of rays emitted by our pupil. The regime of seeing through which we perceive today turns the act of sight into a form of registration, working very much like a camcorder. Eyes that no longer ravish reality are hardly worth tearing out. And so what Illich is alluding to here, as bizarre as this language may strike our ears, was the common way that throughout the ancient classical and early medieval world, people understood what was happening when they saw the world. 
right? So lacking a modern theory of optics where we understand that it is light that comes and, and it is received by the eyes. There was this understanding that the, the organ of sight reached out into the world in order to make contact with the world. Um, in another article where he discusses the history of the gaze, Illich uh, speaks about how this it was sometimes called a fingering gaze that goes out into the world to touch it, as it were, uh, in order to receive the light that it gives and bring it back into the eye. This is a radically different way of understanding what happens when we see, what exactly sight is, and its ethical ramifications. Of course, what Illich goes on to say is that we tend to think of sight rather as, as a more passive, a much more passive activity, where we simply register, not unlike, Illich says rather datedly, a camcorder, we might simply say a camera. Um, and of course, then, when Jesus says we ought to tear our eye out if it offends, that hardly makes sense when the eye becomes a mere passive receptor of information. Now, he does add at the end of that passage, he says, such iconographic image devouring eyes are worthless. And so these modern eyes, this modern understanding of what we are doing when we see, he says, are worthless. And they're worthless on three counts. They're worthless to found or ground hope on biblical reading, to apprehend the horrors of the technological wall, the digitized curtains that separate me from reality. And thirdly, finally, they are inadequate to find joy in the only mirror in which I can discover myself, the pupil of the other. Now, as a case study, I want to proceed here to consider a little bit more closely the work that Illich did on the history and ethics of the gaze. So I'll, I'll refer here to an article um, called Guarding the Eye in the Age of Show. So this project of uncovering the history of, of sight perception uh, is, first of all, a, a deeply ethical project. Right? Here's how Illich speaks about it. He says, I am concerned here with the ethics of the gaze, with the way seeing and looking is shaped by personal training. The Greek word would be ascesis, uh, from which we get our, 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 lang- our, our terminology of asceticism. Right. And so and, and this is uh, something that we're going to definitely come back to before we're done here today. That is that that, that we we fail to understand that our sight could be something that can be trained, that can be um, a, a subject of moral formation or an element. There's an element of moral formation to how we see the world, how we deploy our sight. And so he goes on. He says that the ethics of the gaze is important. Because the habits or the the total character of the person is dependent on the way that a person acts. And so how we habitually exercise our vision ends up shaping us, morally forming us, determines the kind of people we become. Uh, Illich is here, of course, relying on uh, an Aristotelian theory of moral virtue. And so it, but, but the idea that, that the eyes have this, that the eye, that sight has this power to some degree fades from the background when we conceive a vision merely as passive reception rather than an active engagement with the world beyond us. Now he goes on and he explains the, the project in this other way. He says, my motive for studying the gaze of the past is a wish to rediscover the skills of an ocular ascesis, uh, an, uh, an ascetic discipline of vision of sight. My concern, he says, is to make clear the distinction between an earlier and a contemporary gaze. The European gaze wedded for several centuries to the image and the gaze of today absorbed in the interface with show. And the interface was a, a, a particularly derogatory term uh, that Illich deployed. Um, he he often complained about how uh, he had heard uh, certain people talk about what they are doing when they are talking to another person as interfacing with them. And Illich thought this was this was a, a linguistically degrading uh, that it it because in turn in, in a sense it rendered the people systems rather than individuals or persons uh, interacting with one another in the fullness of their embodied condition. 
And then also in this article, the, the, the word show takes on a specific kind of character. Um, it, it is what we might think of as, as the analogous to what Guy Debord called um, the, the regime of the spectacle uh, or what Daniel Borston in the 20th century began to talk about as uh, the regime of pseudo events. And it is certainly augmented by, by digital media and digital culture. And so uh, in, in Lilich's view, he wants to understand what is that difference between the gaze understood as the thing that reaches out to make contact with the world uh, and that which is absorbed in an interface with, with show. So um, he expands on, on what this means, or what he means by an asceticism of the eye in this way. When I speak of the asceticism or training of the eye, I mean much more than the apprenticeship of Zen archers, skeet shooters, mystical navel gazers, or the downcast eye of Victorian spinsters. Instead, what he says is this. My grandmother uh, learned to use aquarelle, a form of, of painting, in order to open her eyes in preparation for her first trip to Italy. Prussian civil servants, no matter their profession, had to pass tests in calligraphy and draftsmanship. Even in my own childhood, Illich says, drawing was still part of the distinguish, distinguishing skills. It trained the eye as music the ear and dancing the gait. Under the tutorship of a widow from Bremen, I had, the, I had to paint flowers and views to improve my attention. Each age, craft and milieu places its own demands on ocular techniques, not only the acuity, but also the moral quality of the gaze was trained. So in these examples, I think what Illich is giving us are various examples in, in, in which in previous cultural milieus, it was understood that vision was something that was just not a default setting but rather something that could be honed and trained and, and not just technically in the mode of the marksman, but also ethically, a learning to, to see reality, a patience before reality, to see it and to allow it to manifest itself before us. Then Illich makes another compelling historical linguistic observation. I think this goes a long way to illustrate this idea that Illich has that this thesis that we are, we have lost our, our senses in an to an important degree. It says dozens of words for shades of perception have disappeared from usage. For what the nose does, someone has counted the victims. Of 158 German words that indicate variations of smell, which Durer's contemporaries used, this would be in the 17th century, only 32 are still in use. Equally, the linguistic register for touch has shriveled. The C words, the sight words, are fare no better. Your glances can still be called leery, dirty, or kind, but hardly in textbooks of physiology. The words that qualify the gaze are now taken as metaphors. And for each of these claims, Illich in his footnote, uh, footnotes gives ample evidence of the way in which these words, these variety of words, multiplicity of words to give us a, a fine-grained understanding of what the eye is doing, what the nose is doing, what we, we are feeling, begin to fall by the wayside and get reduced to an increasingly narrow set of terms. From there, Illich goes on to say, I acknowledge that most people take the advent of such a world, a world dominated by the show, where the senses have wilted away for granted. Further, they take the image as a natural given. They do not distinguish the interocular product of digital programs from the image formation solicited by painters of old. And so the idea here is that there's this history that, that Illich has uncovered and that the, the informaticians, he says, uh, the semioticists, the cognitive scientists, and a considerable number of philosophers have failed to attend to this history uh, of how the idea of seeing has shifted it is the main obstacle, uh, he says, preventing one from following the route on which the image mutated to the point of becoming a trap for the gaze. And this is an interesting uh, point that Illich develops here. 
I argue that this entrapment has a history, beginning in a complex adventure and now reaching the stage of menage a trois. At times, our gaze is still solicited by image. At other times, it is mesmerized by show. But at other times, or excuse me, he goes on and he adds, an ethics of vision would suggest that the user of TV, of ECR, Macintosh, and graphs protect his imagination from overwhelming distraction, possibly leading to addiction. There can be rules for exposure to visually appropriating pictures. Exposures to show may demand a a reasoned stance of resistance. Now, this language, to the degree that that language sounds familiar, it's because it echoes so much of our concern with attention and distraction in the post-internet age, um, a, a concern that I sometimes simply gloss with the phrase attention discourse. Uh, it, Nick Carr's work, uh, beginning with his well-known article in, in 2008, his Google Making a Stupid, and then his, his later book, The Shallows, I think is a kind of urtext of attention discourse, a concern with the way in which the internet is distracting us, cannibalizing our capacity for attention. What I find interesting is at first, Illich anticipates this uh, by several, by, by a decade, almost a decade and a half. And he, he's locating this problem in, in really what can honestly be called the pre-internet age, the pre-commercial internet age. And, and, and that there's something more here. The language of attention, as it tends to circulate in contemporary attention discourse, if I may kind of borrow some other concepts from other parts of Illich's work, has already, in a sense, been abstracted from the body. Attention is a resource. It's not something located in the comments. Uh, it is not a gift. But it is already, even when it is trying to be preserved, formulated as a resource. And for this reason, uh, Illich's perspective would be a great advance on the work of contemporary theorists and scholars and pundits that are trying to preserve attention. Because it, it, it doesn't already render the the uh, thing that they're concerned about preserving as a, as a resource or commodity that already sort of subjects it to the operations of what we have come to call the attention economy. Now, what then is the answer? This is how Illich proceeds. He says, therefore, it appears to me that we cannot neglect the disciplined recovery and asceticism of a sensual praxis in a society of technogenic mirages. If this is the realm that we inhabit, if this is our milieu, a society of technogenic mirages, then what it calls for is an asceticism, sensual praxis. This reclaiming of the senses, this promptitude to obey experience, this is formulation, this promptitude to obey experience, to resist its representation in uh, the multitude of mediated forms that we tend to, to receive, through which we tend to receive experience. He then goes on to say what he calls the chaste look that the rule of St. Benedict, uh, St. Benedict opposes to the lust of the eyes seems to me to be the fundamental condition for renouncing that technique which sets up definitive, a definitive obstacle to friendship. And this, this is the closing paragraph of uh, the talk that he gave in honor of the Lule, hence the reference to technique. But it is a, a magisterial paragraph that ties together so many of Illich's concerns that the loss of, of reality, as it were, uh, the loss of reality, the show, as Illich calls it, our uh, willingness to leave our, let our senses be degraded is ultimately not simply um, a loss of a personal skill or a loss of a personal satisfaction that we might otherwise enjoy. But it is a definitive obstacle to friendship, which then connects with the important place of friendship in Illich's thinking that we developed in the, in the last talk. Now, I'm going to close by just citing a couple of other passages from a memo of sorts that Illich prepared um, for David Ramage or Ramage uh, in proposing what seems like a course of study at McCormick Theological Seminary. And the memo takes uh, the form of, of presenting a kind of theory of, of an asceticism in the sense that Illich has been describing in these other pieces. 
And here's what he says. He says, learning presupposes both critical and ascetical habits, habits of the right and habits of the left. I consider the cultivation of learning as a dissymmetrical but complementary growth of both these sets of habits. In other words, that, that learning requires both the critical and the ascetical. I see that since the foundation of the universe in the late Middle Ages, the humanist tradition has preeminently fostered the formation of critical habits, habits of critical thinking. Higher education has come to be the refinement and habits of the mind, while military service, the conjugal family, and later the media have taken over the sad remnants of the heart's formation. And what, what he would go on to argue is that these had been held together, uh, this ascesis and this theory, this training in the mind. So he says, for example, that the habits of the heart and the cultivation of its virtues are today peripherals to the pursuit of higher learning. They don't have a place in the modern university. Ascetical discipline has been exercised from the core of the learning disciplines. For a full millennium, the church cultivated a balanced tradition of study and reflection within which antique traditions were transmitted to Western societies. Only one aspect of this tradition, namely the conceptual critical side, is accepted as the legitimate concern of humanistic learning. These two asymmetrically complementary domains of consciousness, which both need to be disciplined in a man of learning, they need to be uh, to relate ascetical to critical striving, competence and virtue. This is the aim that Illich sets forth in this program that never is never really materialized, but is presented in this article, um, in this memo that he prepared. And I think that this is a, a a wonderful picture of what we require in this age of technogenic images. What it suggests to me is something much more robust and serious and adequate to the challenges of the age. Challenges that are often um, met with very feeble responses, uh, the need for more critical thinking or the need for media literacy or the need for social media platforms to um, put up little warnings that tell you that a certain fact is contested, uh, the need for more fact checkers. This is, in my view, the level at which present society is attempting to meet the challenges presented by, by digital media. Illich gives us, I think, a much better path, one that recognizes that education or learning in its fullest sense must involve both this aspect of the training of the mind but also a disciplined recovery and asceticism, a sensual praxis. And to learn to see our senses again as something that, that can be trained and that ought to be subject to moral and ethical consideration, I think is a critical uh, gift that Illich gives us and one upon which I think we ought to seek to build.